Hey, Proof listeners, we hope that you enjoyed season three of Proof, and we're working hard on new amazing food stories. We'll have more of those for you this spring, but in the meantime, we've got a special treat for you today. We're going to be sharing an episode from our friends at This Old House. They've got a new podcast called Clear Story, and we're going to share that in a minute. But first, here's a conversation that I had with Clear Story host, Kevin O'Connor. One of the great things about being in the public broadcasting sphere is you get to meet some fantastic people. A show that I've been watching since I was a child is This Old House and Ask This Old House. I am sitting here with Kevin O'Connor, host of This Old House. Glad to be here. So a lot of people will watch a TV show and they think, hey, I would love to be on that show or I could do that. (laughs) Now, several years ago, Kevin, you were on Ask This Old House. Ask This Old House has actual homeowners on that mm. have written questions, asking for advice, help, and you you were on the show. I was watching that show. I remember that show. So tell us how that all came about. Uh, the short story is I grew up watching the show, like a lot of people. I loved it. I watched it with my dad, with my brothers. Um, it got me interested in construction. It got me interested in old houses. So when my wife and I got married, we immediately set out to find the oldest, most rundown house we could afford, knowing that we would fix it up. And like a lot of homeowners, as soon as we started that process, we were like, uh-oh. There's a lot I don't know. Maybe I should have paid closer attention. But it caused us, actually, during this renovation of an 1890s Queen Anne Victorian, to write to this old house, looking for information. And it happened to be the first season of Ask This Old House. That letter that we wrote ended up in a television producer's hand. They said, hey, can we come out, you know, do a little project at your house? A couple guys from the show came out. We did. We stripped some wallpaper, um, and we actually did another thing that never made it on TV with Tommy Silva. But it was a lot of fun. I was psyched. And when they left, I was like, all right, wait, don't go anywhere. <laughs> my front porch, you, me, Tommy Silva, picture for posterity. I'll never see you again. And I thought it was the coolest thing going on. And a month later, they called up out of the blue and were like, hey, any chance you want to host this old house and ask this old house? What an impression you made. Well, the host's role is to be the knucklehead who asks the expert questions. And they were apparently they're like, you're definitely a knucklehead <laughs> when it comes to old houses. So if you're willing to ask a lot of questions of Tommy Silva and Richard and Roger and Norm, you can have the job. So I took it. Um, I thought it lasted a year or two. I love it. Uh, and I'm still here. So my my path to television was dumb luck. Well, I think what's great is that and something that stuck out during that time was how curious you were. Mm. And that's why you asked the question. You wanted help and you were curious. I think anybody that buys an older home to fix it up has to be curious. Or rich. Or rich, Because you got to throw one or the other at it. That's so true. <laughs> um, but your curiosity has now gone into the form of a podcast. It's a great podcast, Clear Story, which has two meanings, but... Why don't you tell us a little bit about Clear Story, the podcast? Yeah, I mean, it's not just my curiosity. I think it is actually a curiosity that runs through all of the guys who I work with, which, you know, you know, is an ensemble. And we've got carpenters and plumbers and electricians, and they're really good at what they do. But they're also teachers. You know, that's what makes them sort of so good on the show. And they all have this sort of, you know, never-ending curiosity to learn how to do things another way, um, how to do them better. So 
for us, when we make the show and re-renovate, there's only so much you can put on TV. I mean, you know this. You are always throwing stuff over the edge, right. over the side to get rid of. But they stick with you. And you're kind of like, oh, I wish we had you know dug a little deeper, but we've only got four minutes or six minutes for that segment. So Clear Story is an opportunity to take a deeper dive on some of the things that we're familiar with um, around homes and renovation. But it's also an opportunity to take a left turn on the things that you wouldn't expect to, for us to talk about. And we can kind of go anywhere so long as it's interesting, um, so long as there's a little bit of inspiration in there. And so long as it sort of sheds light, this sort of idea of a clear story window, an architectural term, you know, so long as it sheds light on a subject and informs, we're in. We're going to talk about it. This episode that we're going to feature on Proof, which is Wood, Dead in the Water. Right. It's a bit uh, of a heavy title there. But uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us about that? So this is about hidden treasure. So picture this. It's the 1600s. People come over to this country. And what do they see? It is a vast expanse that is literally covered in trees. You know, 50% of this continent back then, a billion acres of trees. So it's a virgin forest. It's an old growth forest. And they're not the trees that we think of today. I mean, around here, these eastern white pines, they're 200 feet tall, they're 40 feet around. So it is this amazing resource in abundance. But then over a century, uh, two, three centuries, we harvest and log almost all of them. And we take them and we use them, and so be it. Maybe we wasted them. But now they're gone. And you think you're never going to get them back. But it turns out there are still a few left. And this dead-in-the-water idea is just that. It's about the ones that on the way from the forest to the mill sank to the bottom of the highways that they were being moved over, which were rivers. They cut them down in the winter and they dragged them over land when it was ice on the ground. And then as soon as the spring hit and the water started flowing, they put them into the rivers and they floated them down to Chicago so they can get into our houses. But along the way, Hundreds and thousands of them sank to the bottom or got caught on the bottom. And they're the only source that we have today, really, of these virgin forests, these old growth forests. And there are crazy people out there who dive deep and pull them up. And so this particular podcast is about that industry. It is about the science behind why does a tree go underwater and why is it perfectly preserved? Right. That's counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. We think of wood as something that is just constantly rotting, just waiting to fail on us. And here it is pulled up out of the water after a thousand years of being submerged, and it's like brand new, exactly the way it was the day it was cut down. And these are huge logs. Huge. I mean, these are the logs that built ships. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've talked to guys who uh, have pulled them up, and on the bottom of the log is a brand. It's the king's emblem. Oh, really? Because George? George. George <laughs> wanted them. You know, give me the tallest and straightest. You peasants can have the rest. Yes. So these are amazing um, specimens that are highly coveted. And so our particular episode in this case is talking about who's getting them, how they're getting them, <laughs> the crazy guys who are diving underwater when you can't see more than two feet in front of your face, risking their lives, getting pinned underneath logs and 
bitten by poisonous snakes and all that, to bring them to the surface, uh, and then the joy of using them, to being the first person to cut into them and see them, and then even our own master carpenter, Norm Abram, and his secret fetish that he has for this stuff. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't tell us his source, but he's got one, and he used this stuff um, in a new house that he built. So He it's wouldn't a, share his source no. with oh, you? No. Oh, heavens no. I this love is that. dog-eat-dog world here. <laughs> So it's a deep dive and a very cool subject. And I think people are going to marvel at what was, um, maybe be a little sad at what is, but, you know, then happy again with what can be if we find these things and pull them up. Well, we're going to listen to Wood Dead in the Water. And again, that's from the folks over at This Old House and their great new podcast, Clear Story. Thanks, Kevin. My pleasure. If there's one material that built this country, it's wood. It was fundamental to building the first homes, from our framing and floors to shingles, and it still is. Wood built our economy. It built our Navy. It even helped spark the Revolutionary War and settle the West. But all that old growth wood, the very one that started our national obsession with lumber, it's pretty much gone, right? No, it's not, actually. It's just been hiding. Every day that I go out hunting logs, just like a treasure hunt, it's they don't make them no more. And whenever something's hard to get or impossible to get, that's when everybody wants it. Today, there's a new demand for this old-growth lumber and a new place to find it. From this old house, this is Clear Story. Your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. Now, you might not have heard the term sinker log or deadhead before, and those names can be as mysterious as the wood itself. We're talking about trees that were cut down 150 to 200 years ago to fuel America's early building boom. They were dragged to riverbeds and sent floating downstream to sawmills, where they were cut into framing lumber, flooring planks, and clapboards. But along the way, something interesting happened. Some of this precious cargo sank. We're talking about wood that's hundreds, even thousands of years old, sitting on the bottom of rivers from Maine to Florida to California, just waiting to be discovered. So both sinker logs and deadheads were cut by hand, and the telltale axe markings at one end are the giveaway that these are old-growth wood. Sinkers, well, they just sank. The entire log was fully submerged and hidden underwater. Deadheads, well, that's a little less straightforward. Some say deadhead logs got their name because one end got snagged on the rocks below the water and the other end of the log popped up out of the river, leaving its head dead in the water or sticking out. Amazingly, these logs have been perfectly preserved, and now they're an untapped source of old-growth lumber for flooring, furniture, and fireplace mantles. Someone here at this old house who shares my fascination with sinker logs is our very own Norm Abram. Oh, yeah. It's the coolest wood you're going to ever see <laughs> uh, and ever deal and work with. It's perfectly preserved, which is amazing that it's been sitting down there all that amount of time. I've used it in my house because I love uh, particularly heart pine, which doesn't really even grow anymore from my understanding now. The, the southern yellow pine is a completely different animal and grows faster. And when you think about it, you know, today, foresters who are trying to grow lumber to build houses and so forth, it's all make the trees grow fast. Right. These trees grew just in nature, you know, and they grew so slowly that the character of them is amazing. 
So uh, you mentioned your house, but let's jump back because you did 20 years of building furniture yeah. for New Yankee Workshop. You guys, when you build a piece of furniture, selecting the wood is like selecting the perfect what? The perfect wine for a dinner or something like that. Like you really care about the piece of wood when you do a piece of furniture. That's true. I mean, you take as much time looking over individual boards as you do building the project and seeing how they're going to fit together. For a New Yankee Workshop, we used a lot of saved wood, you know, wood that was used in buildings and taken down that was came from old timber but had been actually used for a building. And we used some that came out of the rivers as well. We actually did a whole scene where we went and showed how they actually acquire these, how they get them up from the bottom of the rivers. What was that like? Uh, that was pretty amazing, especially I was stunned by the way that these particular guys did it. They had a little trailer and a little aluminum boat, and we got in it on this river, and they had a diver, and he went down, and he tied on a log that he found that he thought was going to be good enough, and they slowly bring it up. And we're in just this aluminum boat. They have no idea. It's sort of pitch dark down there, I guess, in a lot of cases. They just grab it and, and pull it up. You know, we did one as well for Charleston, South Carolina, as you know, that, yeah. that beautiful cypress table that was built for the dining room. And we went out on the Edisto River um, in Carolina that, to have them pulled up. Same thing. You know, little yeah. aluminum boat, yeah. <laughs> a couple <laughs> pontoons and a winch. Guy's putting on scuba gear. And I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, no. Yeah. How about the water moccasins yeah. <laughs> and the critters and the 15-mile-an-hour right. current when you get low? Oh, and the zero visibility. It's hairy stuff. Justin finds the log. He has actually attached himself to it by a line. And now the pontoon boat has literally come right up over him so they can drop the winch line, which he grabbed. And now his challenge is in near pitch black to get that line and those tongs onto our log. Current's ripping. Hard to keep the boat stable. Justin wants to float right past us. He's fighting it. The guys who do this, the guys who actually go and find these things. I mean, they're, they're treasure hunters, right? Yeah, they're like gold miners, except it's wood. <laughs> you know, they want to get down there and be the first one to get it. Whether it's from a dam, whether it's from a beam in an old mill building that was reused, um, or if it literally came up from the bottom of a river or lake bed, what's the beauty in it? Like, why do you care that it's old growth? For one thing, I care about it because it's, the most stable kind of lumber that you can get if it's properly dried and everything. It's that old growth. You look at the growth rings on a piece of timber or on any kind of a board, and when you see you can barely count them without a magnifying glass, you're going, I want that piece of wood because I know if I build a piece of furniture with that piece of wood, it's going to last forever. Right. That's the beauty of it because you can't find that wood anyplace else. It's just gone. It's gone. We've cut it all I down. Mean, it's, it's in the rivers now. That's where we got to get it. So how did these logs end up on the bottom of rivers? Well, we have to go back 400 years to when the first settlers arrived in New England. They were definitely looking at cod, they were looking at beaver, and they were definitely looking at trees. That's Sherry Davis. She's the executive director of the Maine Forest and Logging Museum in Bradley, Maine. In the 1600s, trees covered nearly 50% of the entire landscape. That's more than 1 billion acres of forest. And the trees, like the eastern white pine, were massive, 200 feet tall and 40 feet around. And it turns out they were the perfect wood for ships because they were straight, strong and light and resistant to rot. By 1700, England had cut down so much of its own forests that it needed a new supply, which they found here in the colonies. So what does King George I do? 
well, he grabs all the biggest pines. The tallest trees and anything over 24 inches in diameter were branded for the Royal Navy. So, in fact, if you were found, uh, say you cut down something and made floorboards out of it, they found um, flooring in your house that was wider than 22 or 24 inches. You got fined substantially for each board. Now, this didn't go over well with the colonists. They also needed pine to build houses and bridges, and pretty soon, fighting broke out. It's said that battles over the white pine even helped start the Revolutionary War. After the war, America has its trees. And it didn't take long for the lumber industry to get booming. By the 1800s, hundreds of sawmills lined riverbanks up and down the East Coast. After all, cities were growing. The population of New York City alone exploded from 60,000 in 1800 to more than half a million by 1850. And as settlers moved west, more wood was needed for new homes and bridges. Year after year, the demand for lumber grew. And to feed that hunger, they needed access to the trees and a lot of men to cut them down. A lot of them were farmers. They would want to make cash income over the winter when you wouldn't have so much farm work. They put in really long days, and you know, maybe for a dollar a day, and spent 90 days out in the woods in the middle of winter in freezing cold conditions. Everybody's living in this one shed, you know, all these wet socks hanging up and nobody, you know, you're not bathing and you're out there for like three months or something. It was pretty well known to be fairly smelly. This was rough living. The logging camps were built all over New England, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and eventually the Pacific Northwest too. And they inspired songs and folklore. Remember Paul Bunyan and Babe, his blue ox? Tales about his strength and size made him a national hero. The stories about the giant lumberjack breaking up log jams miles long were folklore, sure. But the dangers of logging were very real. These guys were cutting down trees as tall as 1 to 200 feet by hand. They could be crushed by a falling tree, cut by an axe, or trampled by a horse. And the danger didn't stop there. Once the trees were cut, the quickest way to get the logs to a sawmill was by water. We're talking huge logs, 15 to 20 feet long and weighing 2,000 pounds or more. Every spring, once the snow and ice melted, millions and millions of board feet of lumber were tossed into raging waters for the river drives. A guy would get out there like he was playing pixie sticks and you'd push this log over and push that log over and try and sort the pile off and get it moving. But sometimes it actually became so jammed up that there was no way that guys could get it moving. Log jams were part of the deal. The rivers were curved, there were rocky waterfalls, and there was just the sheer number and weight of the logs rushing downstream. River drivers, or river pigs as they were called, guys with long poles and spikes on their boots, rode the logs. And when they couldn't break up a log jam, they tossed in a stick of dynamite. So he would climb out on these logs, and they were kind of known to like be able to eyeball where would be the most likely place to set off some dynamite, blow the thing up, and logs would go flying. And hopefully, that would break up the mess and logs would start flowing again. It's probably no surprise that some of these logs, about 10%, were lost underwater. Some got waterlogged and sank. 
others were pushed underwater by the crush of the floating cargo. And that's where they've remained ever since. When you're able to see something that you know nobody's seen for hundreds of years, there's no way to put words in it. You know, just no way. I started diving in 1965, and I started seeing the logs back then. John Clater is a deadhead logger in Florida. I was a fossil hunter, artifact hunter, bottle hunter, anything historical. I learned to dive and bought some tanks and hopped in the water. And why were you diving for artifacts in the water? Like, why are those things in the water? The steamships and, and early travelers, they, they got where they were going by, you know, water vessels. And the river was a trash can. They, they threw everything they didn't want in the river. You know, they lost things they didn't want to lose, but they all went in the river and they went to the bottom. John has been pulling up sinker logs, or deadheads, from the bottom of Florida's rivers for over 40 years. Today, he has a permit to hunt these treasures in three rivers in central Florida, the Suwannee, St. John's, and the Apalachicola rivers. You know, I was a pretty smart cat to start with, so whenever I saw the logs, if I saw them in abundance, uh, I would write in a log book where I saw them. So what are the patterns that you noticed? Like what causes logs to Uh, end up in one place versus another? Take a big river, like any of the three big rivers that I'm working now, if you had a sandbar situation, the raft breaks up, it scatters the logs here and there, and then you can just take the information you had in the past where you found logs and be able to go in, even if you couldn't see, and feel around until you you know found where there was a concentration. And that's one thing. And if it's a curve or a corner that might be shallow and then drop off deep to a hard bottom, to a rock bottom, you know, most of the times there's going to be some accumulation there where they'll stack up in that corner and you can literally go down and you'll be swimming in a nest of, of logs that are been wadded up there for a couple hundred years, you know. And what is it about the logs that you like? Why are you going for them and what are you using them for? It's treasure hunting every day. Every day that I go out hunting logs, it's like a treasure hunt. It's, they don't make them no more. And whenever something's hard to get or impossible to get, that's when everybody wants it. And they do. Lots of people want this wood. Planks for flooring or a fireplace mantle can go for up to 10 times the price of regular lumber. Now, there are rules about deadhead logging. You have to have a permit that covers specific bodies of water, and you have to pay a fee to a state's Department of Environmental Protection. But after all that is done, guys like John, well, they still have to suit up in their scuba gear and go head out onto the water. And I literally anchor the boat up, and I'll jump in and swim down and feel, find what I'm looking for. It might take you five or ten minutes, but I find what I'm looking for, and then I'll uh, take a, uh, a cable and a set of grapples. I've got a winch mounted in, I've got five work boats, so i got winches mounted in all these boats. Go down, hook the grapple to it, and come back to the boat and start winching the log up. And hopefully i got enough boat to, to break it free from where it's at. What if you don't have enough boat? i go get another boat. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've, I've been down the road with hard knocks. <laughs> so what sort of trouble can you get into? I've been uh, bit by a cottonmouth moccasin underwater. I've had logs come loose from the grapples when I was underwater fall on me, pin me to the bottom, and take me an hour to dig out from under it. Luckily, I didn't lose my regulator, but 
I can tell you hundreds of stories about the bad problems I've had. I guarantee it, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) You can't see anything. There's poisonous snakes. You're trying to lift a thousand-pound piece of wood that can pin you to the bottom. I mean, is the current bad? Oh, yeah. The the Swanee averages probably three and a half to five knots. When I jump off the edge of the boat, I got 50 to 55 pounds of, of lead weight on, and I'm going straight to the bottom. Quick. You are crazy. <laughs> Why are you doing it? I love what I do. How many places can you go that you can actually say you're going to work and you stand a chance of finding something that's um, never been seen in a couple hundred years and it's got a value? It's worth money. I mean, I don't see how you can beat that job, you know? They've been in the water for 200 years. Yeah. When That's they were, right. When they were cut, how old were they? Uh, the pines, they said back in the early days, were three to 400 years old, sometimes five. And the cypress trees were anywhere from probably 400 to 1,000, 1,500 years old. You could be pulling up a piece of wood that's 1,500 years old? Absolutely. I had the University of Florida cord one of the logs I found eight or nine years ago, and it was here before Columbus was here. Wow. What'd you do with it? I sold it to a a guy that had a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my job, man. (laughs) It's so much better than selling to somebody without a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) What is it like when you find one of these pieces of treasure? Like, what do you think when you pull that thing up on those grappling hooks and you haven't died? And there it is, exposed to air for the first time in 200 years. What's that feeling like? Well, it's uh, it goes back to the treasure hunt. You're actually, you're the first person to see it. You're the first person to put your hands on it. And when you take that outside ugliness off of that tree that's been underwater for, you know, 100 years or 200 years or whatever, and you, you, you peel that first outside piece off and you see that it's the brightest most beautiful vivid colors that you ever saw you've never seen lumber that looks like that because you've just never seen lumber like that you know my eyes were bugging out i was going like man this is the this is like opening a box of cracker jacks and there's a prize inside it's the colors and the and the hues and the tones and the configuration the grain in the wood those trees haven't been here in hundreds of years. There's no way for you to see it, you know? I do. We're the first guys to, once you open one of those logs up, you're the first guy to see it, you know, since the pioneers did it 100, 200, 300 years ago. Discovering a piece of history. Norm, that's pretty cool, right? We just heard what goes into actually recovering these things, these treasure hunters. And then it makes you realize that now that you've got them, you know, there's all these things that you can use them for that are appropriate. Right. As you start to cut them open and see what's on the inside, you start thinking about what am I going to do with this? Am I going to build a piece of furniture with this particular wood? Am I going to use it for flooring? Am I going to use it for some historical restoration? There's a whole bunch of things you can do with it. And that idea that it is so hard to get 
And if you put it in a master craftsman's hand to make something beautiful out of it, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind thing, right? Right. And they're even taking it now, too, and making veneers so that you're not using as much of it, but you still get the look. Interesting. So this stuff is gold to a furniture maker. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But not just furniture. Great for flooring. You bring that up yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. You've just finished a really big project, uh, yeah. your own yeah. uh, house that you're building. Right. And you sought this stuff out. Oh, yeah. I, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to use river-recovered wood because I knew where to get it, mm-hmm. and I knew what was available, and I knew that I was going to do a radiant heat floor. Now, you have to be careful no matter how good the wood is. You don't want to have too much heat, but generally it's not more than like 80 degrees from what I know. So I wanted vertical grain flooring for wherever there was radiant heat. So when it went down, the difference that I saw between the river recovered and something you might get out of a mill from an old mill is that because it's been sitting there for a long time, you get a lot of different color variation. Some people may not like that, but I really love it. It's like art. You know, it's like... You're not trying to make everything look the same. So when you look at it, you see a little black marks here and a little stripe over here. And I took a picture of it from my wife, and she looked at it. This was before it was uh, finished. It hadn't been sanded yet. And she said, is that the way you thought it was going to look? And I said, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> but and when she saw it in person, she said, wow, it's beautiful. You yeah. know, it just has a lot of character to it. This stuff has a story. Right? I mean, you can tell the story of an old-growth virgin forest that was untouched by people who came to this country. You can tell stories about these hardy loggers who cut it down with an axe and dragged it out Mm -hmm. by horse and then literally stood on top of them and floated them down rivers. What does it mean as a furniture maker or as someone who cares so much about houses to have something to work with that has a story? Oh, that means a lot. I mean, for me, and that's why I use it in some of my projects and why I've used it in my house, is that this is a piece of history. It's like buying an antique. And when you start looking at how it got there and how it was preserved, like we just talked about, that's a whole story that you can tell when people come to your house. That's Hart Pine River Recovered. What do you mean, River Recovered? And then you tell the whole story and they go, wow, I didn't know about that. So we're, we're telling history at the same time. You got the whole cocktail party figured out. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Right there in your flooring. (laughs) You know, there was once something in this country that was so abundant and for such a long time, and yet we took it for granted, even wasted it. But the effect it had on us, it was remarkable. I mean, it literally built this country. It built our homes, our cities, our entire economy. And then... Just when we thought it was all gone, the old growth, the virgin forest, that tight grain that we want so badly, we discover this surprising treasure buried on the bottom of lakes and rivers. And when you see them, and when you know that we have access to them again, you realize that this resource has always been a treasure. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced by Rococo Punch for This Old House. Production support from Catherine Fenelosa, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. Thanks to our guests, Norm Abram, Sherry Davis, and John Clater. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week.